All right, have a seat. Thanks, Tom. This, uh, thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for both those who are here in person and those who are uh, watching via video. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our value series. And so what we've been doing this summer, uh, we know that as a church plant, summer's kind of a weird time and uh, the rhythms of life kind of seem to start back in the fall. And so we just wanted to take this time this summer to talk about as a church plant who we are. And so we spent uh, the first month, we talked about our identities, that we are a family of missionary disciples. It is our conviction that that is who we are in Christ. We have been made heirs to the throne of grace. We live in the image of a missionary God. God, who moved out of heaven, moved into the neighborhood to come and be amongst us and make a way for us. And we continue to sit at his feet, growing in him through the power of his word. It's why we're here this morning as disciples. And so for then, the last six weeks, we've been talking about, so if we are a family of missionary disciples... What does that mean about how we live? And so we've been talking about our values. And we've talked about why we value hospitality, why we value generosity. And we've talked about a number of those things. And we're going to be ending that section today by talking about why service is one of our values. And then next week, we'll be transitioning in and through the month of August to talking about, so what is our mission? If this is who we are and this is how we live how do we, what do we hope that the Lord would accomplish? And our hope is that he would use us to create a movement of making disciples, mobilizing missionaries, and multiplying churches to the glory of God. So this morning, as we end this section on our values, we're going to be talking again about why we value service. And I'm going to be going a little different direction in this. We talk a lot about service. We do a lot of things to serve here as a church. We value that. That's often our Shalom Sunday is often on fifth Sundays. We take a day to go and to serve. And we seek to serve in the midst of our family groups. And Jana leads a team each month that goes and serves at Crosslines. And we, we value service and we talk a lot about that. But I want to look at service from a bit of a different posture this morning. In chapter 10 of Luke... It's really an amazing chapter where we see the beauty of service lived out. At the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72 and he sends them two by two and they go throughout the region and they testify of the good news. Jesus tells them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And then he tells them, like, whatever house you enter into, first say, peace be to this house. And so he sends them out to go and to testify of the truth all throughout the region. And then they come back, and we see in verse, 70, in verse 17, the 72 return, and they are ecstatic. And they're filled with joy. And they tell Jesus, Jesus, even the, even the demons are subject. Like, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus gives them this, uh, this word that is important for all of us. He says, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so he tells the 72, like, the amazing things that you've witnessed me doing, like, don't be so amazed by those. I'm Jesus. I'm the Lord of the universe. Of course, I, of course the demons are subject to me. But the greater miracle, the greater object of your joy should be that I've rescued you, that you have eternity, that you have been granted redemption through the grace of God. And he goes on, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And so this whole chapter is just seeing what happens when we step out in obedience and serve our Lord. Not only do we see the amazing things he does, but we also are reminded of the truth of the gospel, that God so loved us. He sent his only son 
to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there no longer be condemnation for us, but everlasting joy in Christ. And Jesus tells them that's where your joy comes from. And as amazing as, as this chapter is, it's easy to look past these last few verses, which is really the culmination and one of the most important stories within the chapter. Verses 38 through 42, Jesus teaches us something absolutely significant about service that is easy for us to overlook. And so I want to pray, and then uh, we're going to dive into that. Father, thank you for this day and for the opportunity to just come sit at your feet and hear your word. Lord, uh, we, we need nothing else in our lives more as Christians than we need to sit at your feet and be changed by the power of your word. God, I ask that you would do that this morning. I ask that through just the simple truth of your scripture that we might be changed, that uh, Holy Spirit, you might lead us to, to maybe carve out new rhythms in our life or even to, to bring back maybe a rhythm we've, we've forgotten or forsaken or maybe just to be encouraged in a rhythm that we've been fighting for uh, on a daily basis for a long time. Lord, um, remind us of where our power comes from and of who you are on this day. I ask these things in your good name. Amen. So verse 38 through 42, Tom read the passage. In verse 38, it tells us that Jesus entered a village and uh, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So Mary and Martha, along with their brother, brother Lazarus, were dear friends of Jesus. And they lived in Bethany. And Bethany was this little this town that was probably about two miles from Jerusalem. And so Jesus is coming over to visit. He's coming over for dinner. And this was a, a dear friend. If you recall, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Mary and Martha love Jesus. Jesus loves them, hence being brought to tears at the news of Lazarus' death. There is a close friendship here. I have spent my entire life living in a house with a woman who gets really serious about when people are coming over for dinner, when a guest is coming. I, I never did the single thing. I got married pretty young. So I remember as a kid, my mom, you know, anytime people were coming, we all had jobs and everything needed to be just right if we were welcoming guests into our home. And then I got married and immediately my wife's the same way, values the same thing. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't matter what we say to other people. If they're coming to our house, the house has to be just right. Like it's just a, it's just a thing. It's a serious, weighty thing. And so it's not hard for us to envision this is the heart of Martha. Jesus Christ is coming to our home. Things need to be right. The floor needs to be swept. All of these things. And it tells us that as Mary's doing this work, verse 39 says, and she had a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Martha didn't get the help that she needed in her endeavor to have everything perfect from her sister Mary. And it wasn't that Mary was lazy. I'm sure Mary did some preparation also. But Mary valued and prioritized sitting at the feet of Jesus. And this was a, this, there's a, a lot of symbolism in this. Like this was the posture of Jewish scholars. This is the, what you did in the midst of a rabbi. You sat at their feet and listened. In Acts 22, verse 3, Paul says that he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. And that's what he means, that he literally, he sat at the feet of this rabbi and was learned and taught by him. 
And as Mary is sitting and, and basking in the presence of Jesus, seeking to just receive his word to be with him, all the rest of the world is set aside as she is with Jesus. Verse 40 tells us, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. We see Mary is, she's not only sitting at the Lord's feet, but says she listened to his teaching. But Martha, as, as Mary has the word of the, of the Lord being poured into her, Martha, it says, is distracted by doing things. And she begins to become quite frustrated by it. It's important to note that Martha is motivated by an honorable cause. Martha is not out just trying to do this just for the sake of nothing. She desires, she loves Jesus and desires to serve him. She wants to work hard for her beloved Jesus. And this is a noble desire. The problem was that she was distracted so much by serving that she wasn't able to be with him. Working for Jesus distracted her from actually being with Jesus. This is an important lesson for all who seek to follow Christ. Like Martha, serving the Lord diligently without having communion with him often leads us to serving from a frustrated posture. We begin to develop one or two things. We either begin to develop self-pity, we feel alone. Why am I in this by myself? Nobody else to be, seems to be doing the things that I'm doing. Or we begin to develop self-righteousness. Maybe my mom was right. Maybe I am special. Begins to be the thoughts that creep into our head. I mean, I seem to be working harder than others. I seem to be doing more. I can't help but feel like Martha began to develop a bit of a self-righteous. Like, I'm, I'm actually working for Jesus and my bum sister is just sitting here doing nothing. Maybe, maybe I am the better sister. And both of those postures, the cure is the truth of the gospel. The gospel speaks to our times of self-pity and that if we are in Christ, if we are living, we've been granted access to the Father and if we are living in communion with the Father, then we are never alone in our work ever. If we are the last person in our country do, speaking wherever, whatever land we're in, if we're the last one speaking the truth of the gospel, we do not do that on our own. And that is certainly the case for many, the feeling of many throughout our world. But if we're dwelling in the presence of the Father that we've been granted access to by Christ, we are never alone. We need not feel that self-pity. And we are certainly not self-righteous. If the gospel is the truth that we've been given everything in Christ, not on the basis of what we have to offer, but on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness, then I have no righteousness to earn. Then I am, and then as a Martha, I am in the same place as Mary. I only I am not being granted the same intimacy. The gospel is the cure for both, and the gospel leads us predominantly to the feet of Jesus. You see, Martha's real problem in this moment was not Mary, it was Martha. She had become distracted with tasks and taken her eyes off Jesus. The one she loved sat in her midst, ready to invite her to sit with her, to give her all that she needed, but she was so distracted by doing things for him that she failed to take advantage of the opportunity to be with him. Service become, became an idol above intimacy with Christ. Martha's frustration is typical of those who diligently serve with good intent, 
but either forget to or outright neglect to sit at the feet of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon on this verse once said, The Martha spirit asks, If the work is done, is that not all? But the Mary spirit asks whether Jesus is well pleased or no. All must be done in his name and by his spirit or nothing is done. The legalist inside of us can easily become like Martha. And the same way that, that salva- it's easy for our view of salvation, sometimes our, our, our flesh would prefer that salvation just be a list of things we can do. If I can just check these boxes, then I can stand well on my own accord. And there certainly is a list. The list is called the law, but we know to be true that the law we cannot meet, but Christ has met. And so that leads us to the, the Mary spirit recognizes this, and, 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 the, the, and the motivation of the, Mary, the spirit like Mary is not is just accomplishing tasks, but it is what is it that is pleasing to the Lord? Accomplishing tasks can become an idol because it's something we can tangibly hold to and accomplish and feel good. If I make a to-do list and I accomplish my to-do list, I feel good about myself. But the motivation of the Christian isn't to feel good about self. It's what is it that is pleasing to the Lord? What does the Lord invite us into? And in this case, what was pleasing to the Lord was to be in his presence. Jesus didn't give two hoots about what Martha's house looked like. He came to be with Martha. He came because he loved her, desired her, desired her, delighted in her, and wanted to be with her. And so this is what Jesus says to Martha, verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. He says her name twice, Martha. Martha. You can almost hear as you read just the love in Jesus' voice. He's not angry with Martha. He loves her and desires her to have the good portion. Martha loved him and wanted to serve him, but he says she had not added the one thing that is needed. And I want to pay attention to that term, one thing. This wasn't just a term Jesus plucked out of the air, but the idea, this phrase, one thing, is actually found throughout Scripture. And I want to point you to a few of those. The psalmist in 27.4 says this, One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek, and that is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist says the one thing that I desire and I will seek is to be in the presence of Jesus each day of my life. And the rich young ruler When Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. And then he shares with the rich young ruler, give all your things away, because Jesus knew as a gracious gracious savior, he knew those things were what prevented him from being able to truly be with Jesus. So he says, leave all those things behind and come and and be with me. Come and follow me. Jesus is tells the rich young ruler that the one thing he must do, the rich young ruler, hey man, he knows scripture, he's a, he's a big fan of Jesus, he's, he's, he's willing to follow, he's going to be, you know, whatever's needed, seems like he'd be a great church member, but Jesus points out, there's this one thing, you have to put me above all else. And then in Philippians 3, 13 through 14, 
Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I don't consider that I've made it my own. Paul acknowledges his struggle, his brokenness. He acknowledges Paul knew full well who he was outside of Christ. He knew the terrible, wretched person that was riding on the road to Damascus before the Lord and grace showed up, kicked him off his horse and declared, you belong to me now. He says, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind His shortcomings no longer define him. I strained forward to what lies ahead, and that being to be in the presence of the glorified Christ. Martha's kitchen would be messy again, likely the very next day. If it was my house with three kids, likely in the next 10 minutes. Like the house will be messy again. The work that we desire to do will always need to be done. And we certainly need to do it. Their service is real. That's the bulk of Luke 10. It's needed. We need to be a people willing to serve and invest. But the work never ends when we have the opportunity to be with Jesus. It's by far the greater portion. Mary's house would be a mess again. Martha's house would be a mess again, but Mary's heart would be changed forever by her encounter with Christ. To sit at the feet of Jesus turns our focus to his teaching. That is what we ultimately need. All of us have a tendency and uh, a struggle, a leaning that tells us to define our own reality that we, we develop our own philosophies, our own ideas, our own interpretations of science, all these things, and, and we were created with a mind, and, and well, and we, so we absolutely should. But if you took the 20 smartest people in the world and you discussed philosophy or morals or all of these things, you'd get 20 different versions, 20 different answers. The greatest minds in the world could not come to a consensus on what absolute truth is. And so we know that our intellect, our passions, our desires are not the ultimate guide of what is actually true. Our emotions will always lead us towards our biases and not to absolute truth. Yet Jesus provides us that which is absolutely true, that which is greater than our emotions, greater than our thoughts, greater than our philosophical ramblings, is the word of God himself that he has provided us. When we sit at the feet of Jesus, we acknowledge where our ultimate source of authority comes from. And it begins to define all our, our, our very views, our very thoughts. When we, as we're with Jesus, we become more like Jesus. To sit at the feet of Jesus turns our focus to worship. Rebellion and pride get set aside in that moment. We don't come and sit at the feet of Jesus with all of our pride and rebellion. When we gaze upon the risen Lord, our pride melts away because it can't stand in comparison to him. Not to one whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit to who he is. To be in his presence naturally by the, by the power of the Spirit humbles us. And it lets that which holds us back drip away. To sit at the feet of Jesus turns our focus to who he is who he really is. For a moment, Martha forgot who it was that was sitting in her living room. 
You would not be worrying about drying the dishes if you knew the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the world into existence, was sitting in your living room. I mean, you wouldn't be drying the dishes if you knew the rock was sitting in your living room, let alone the Lord of creation. But in the midst of her busyness, Martha forgot who Jesus was, being at his feet, setting aside time each day to move all else aside and to be in his word with him is an acknowledgement to our head, our heart, and our soul of who he is. To sit at the feet of Jesus turns our focus to discipleship and away from lesser callings. All of us have been called to many things. You have been placed as a missionary in the place where God has you. Whether you are a missionary to the children, the child that you are raising, whether you are a missionary in the office that God has put you, the school classroom where you go, the ministry you serve in, the neighborhood that you live in, all of these things, you have an abundance of callings, but your ultimate calling is to make disciples. And when we sit at the feet of Jesus and let the rabbi teach us, let the great teacher teach us what is true and real, we are reminded that helping people become more like Christ is the greatest of callings that we've been called to, above all else. And to sit at the feet of Jesus turns our focus to the one who first loved us. Sitting at the feet of Jesus reminds us, reorients our heart toward the truth of the gospel. God doesn't love us if we're good. It's not if we do all these things, then maybe we can earn the affections of the Father. No, the Father loved us. In the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our, we're all on the road to Damascus when the Lord showed up and revealed himself in glory and rescued us. Not on the basis of anything we have to offer, but on the basis of his abundant grace. We seek to do good things. We seek to serve, not so the Father will love us, but because he loved us. And this is in, that sounds similar. It sounds like you're just flipping a couple of words, but it's entirely different. It's the difference between legalism and gospel. It's the difference between license and gospel. It's the changes, the whole thing. When we sit at the feet of Jesus... We acknowledge that he first loved us and that becomes the motivation that we serve. We leave being with him, desiring to serve him out of that time in which we were reminded of his love for us through his word. Transformation begins at the feet of Christ. It's the reason the enemy works so hard to keep you from being at the feet of Christ. It's the reason he, he reminds you that you need to check your phone first thing in the morning. It's the reason that, he, that you, you have a million different thoughts that come to your head that prevent you from prioritizing just going and sitting with Jesus. He convinces you that that doesn't feel very efficient. But transformation begins at the feet of Christ. You must go there with Mary, and it's only afterward that you are fit to serve with Martha. Only after taking the posture of Mary are you fit in any way to serve and work like Martha. Spurgeon, again, on this text said, Imagine not that to sit at Jesus' feet is a very small, unmeaning thing. It means peace. For they who submit to Jesus find peace through his precious blood. It means holiness. For those who learn of Jesus learn no sin, but are instructed in things lovely and of good repute. It means strength. 
For they that sit with Jesus and feed upon him are girded with his strength. The joy of the Lord is their strength. It means wisdom. For they that learn of the Son of God understand more than the ancients because they keep his statutes. And it means zeal. For the love of Christ fires hearts that live upon it. And they that are much with Jesus become like Jesus, so that the zeal of the Lord's house eats them up. In our times of being with Jesus, we're given a glimpse into a better world, into the kingdom reality. And that begins to infect us and transform. The answer to all, all, all of us want to change. We all have things we want to change. Things we wish, sins that we wish weren't there, desires that we wish were, thoughts that we would never actually share with anybody because we're ashamed. We, we desire to change these things. We read books. We listen to podcasts. But ultimately, the answer is to be at the feet of Jesus, to be with him and to let his word transform us. This account from the life of Jesus shows us that there are three types of people who claim Christ. Some are like Mary. They know how to serve, but they also know how to sit at the feet of Jesus. And in my experience, these folks are often the least noticed in the church because they tend not to need notice. They are fully content and with, the, with just enamoring Christ. Some are like Martha. Martha serve often relentlessly because it feels good and it's great to be acknowledged for their accomplishments. And if we're honest, the church tends to value Martha's and we hold them in high esteem until Martha's inevitably burn out. And then we act surprised by that. I don't know what happened. It's just they've been you know, serving nonstop for 10 years. We thought they were good because it looked good. But there was never communion with Jesus. Like we, we worried a lot about making sure they were serving but we tended not to think much or ask much about what does your time with Christ look like? They do all this serving without adding the one thing. You can be the pastor of a large church. You can write a million books. You can be the head of every committee. You can do all of those things and appear very happy and successful. But if you're missing that one thing, the world might be enamored by you but you will crash and burn. And if God is gracious to you, he will meet you in that moment and restore you and correct you in righteousness. And then there are people who don't do either. They aren't even in the house with Jesus for they're too busy with their own pursuits. This morning, I just, as we close, I just want to, I want to encourage you I didn't want to just talk about service and the reasons why we serve. You know those things, and we'll continue to talk about those things a lot next this month as we move into discussing mission. But before we discuss mission, I want you to understand that we value service, but we value gospel service, which is birthed from a growing in our acknowledgement of Christ's love for us. Anything else is, is legalism and is a desire to earn a righteousness that we cannot earn. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Subversive Spirituality, he once said this, Busyness is the enemy of spirituality. It is essentially laziness. It is doing the easy things instead of the hard thing. It is filling our time with our own actions instead of paying attention to God's actions. It is us taking charge. I believe uh, Eugene to be right on. 
in this regard. Busyness can often be mistaken with holiness, but busyness can more times than not just be an attempt for us to try to be responsible for or control our own salvation. It becomes a form of legalism. The harder thing, it is often easy for us to get up, you know, pound our double espresso and start doing things. It is much harder for us to stop, acknowledge that the world depends on Christ and not on us, to maybe turn off my phone for a time and to just sit and be with Jesus. Many of us, that feels inefficient, that feels like a waste of time, but if we're honest, something inside of us tells us that's a much harder thing to do because it's a much weightier, it's a much better use of time. I have found, it's only been since January, I have committed to, I turn my phone off every Friday night and I don't turn it on again till Saturday night. And I have found that the hardest two things in my week are turning my phone off on Friday it's incredibly difficult. I'm just, do I need to get one more text off? Do I, before dinner time on Friday, I turn it off. And it's just something in my soul, like it's hard to, I just have to like, okay, it's off, I'm done, it's off. But then what's weird is that within a span of only 24 hours, the even harder thing is I, I have to turn it back on. <laughs> and I don't want it to, just, just that 24 hours of not having something vying for my affection freeze my soul to a place where I don't even want to go back. I'm ready to just chuck that thing into the ocean, man. We need to be a people who serve out of being enamored with Christ. As I close today, I want to read you this word and then we'll pray. Psalm 104 speaks, uh, the psalmist sings of his being enamored with Jesus. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters, and he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. Lord, you are truly very great. You are worthy of our praise, our adoration. You are worthy of our lives. God, I pray, uh, I ask you that like, like the psalmist, would we be enamored by who you are? With the very emblems of, of creation, the things that we see, the air that we breathe, the clouds we gaze upon, would all of them just remind us of your majesty? And Lord, only after we are enamored by you, would you use us as the winds by which your power goes forth, by which your gospel is spread throughout neighborhoods and workplaces and, and our own families. Would you set us on fire, making us a light through the work that you're doing in us by the power of the gospel? Lord, we are prone to busyness. Lord, we acknowledge our, our culture values busyness and holds it as the highest of values. Yet you, you, you don't call us to such things. Not void of, 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 of you. And yet, Lord, we are prone to that reality time and time again. We carry, uh, we, we carry with us the, the technologies, the calendars that just remind us of how much we have to do. We are like Martha to the 10th degree.
Lord, forgive us for this. Lead us to your feet. God, I don't know what it is that was different about Mary. I don't know uh, what it was that, that led her to, um, to just such a healthier posture. I don't know the distinctives of the two. Uh, but you know all of our hearts. You know uh, what, uh, what leads us to, to works and what leads us to reveling in your grace. And God, I just ask you, um, Holy Spirit, that even this week, would you prompt us, lead us to your feet? I would be so bold, Lord, as to ask you to do whatever you must to bring us to your feet. Take away whatever you must. Break us however you must, that we might sit with you, revel with you, uh, that we might sit at your feet in your word, just enjoying being in your presence and submitting ourselves to your holy decree. Lord, lead us to that posture and that place that you might do amazing works through us for your glory and our good. I ask these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen.